all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about eisenhowercenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. We want to thank VetBiz Central, which is part of the U.S. Small Business Association, VBOC, Vet Business Outreach Centers. VetBiz Central covers Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio, and can be reached at vetbizcentral.org. Let's move on to our programs. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio, Jim Demarest. Jim, welcome to Veterans Radio. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, great to be on Veterans Radio as a currently serving military member and veteran as well. Well, I was going to bring in a little bit of history here for our veteran radio listeners. Jim is uh, more properly uh, referred to as General. Uh, He's a Brigadier General. He went to the United States Air Force Academy. He was an F-15 fighter pilot and and, uh, currently uh, has a leadership position in the Florida Air National Guard. But we're not on to talk about any of that today, are we, Jim? No, no, we're not. And the less we talk about me, the more we can talk about uh, Captain Steve Phyllis. Well, this is a this is a story that really needs to get out, and it, it hits on a couple of different themes that we focus on in Veterans Radio. And, and the mission that you're on is to try to have Captain Stephen Richard Phyllis, a fighter pilot, uh, be considered for the Medal of Honor as a result of his actions in uh, the war in Kuwait during Operation Desert Storm. And so this reaches back to, you know, late 1990, early 1991. But you have a much longer relationship with uh, Captain Phyllis. Tell us how that relationship started. Yes, well, thanks for that. Uh, And uh, the story, of course, dates me, but Steve and I... uh, entered the United States Air Force Academy together in the summer of 1978. And uh, I first met Steve uh, while there at the academy. He and I were both on the academy boxing team. 
that was not an intercollegiate program. It was a club sport. Uh, and Steve, like me, was left-handed, and neither one of us are particularly tall for our weight class. So we had similar fighting styles. And so I like to call Steve and I boxing buddies. We trained together. Uh, we worked together. We strategized uh, how to be successful as left-handed boxers. And actually, Steve was in my corner when I fought uh, at the Wing Open Championship there at the Air Force Academy. In that relationship, uh, as many do in college and certainly in the crucible of a uh, military academy, was a strong relationship that grew over time. You, you went off to F-15 school uh, and he went off to fly A-10s, if I understand it right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's a great observation. You know, uh, I think as military members, uh, oftentimes our career paths diverge, but as soon as they reconnect or as soon as we reconnect, it's as though we saw each other very recently. So after graduation, you're right that I went to F-15s, Steve went to A-10s. So we went to pilot training at the same time, went through lead-in fighter training at the same time. We both flew fighters overseas. And then we both were graduates of the Air Force Fighter Weapons School or the Top Gun program, um, which after which uh, landed Steve uh, in uh, Myrtle Beach as an A-10 fighter pilot and weapons officer on the eve of the invasion of Kuwait. Most of our veteran radio listeners, and certainly anybody with uh, Air Force or Air National Guard experience, uh, uh, knows about, loves, and appreciates the A-10. But why don't you tell folks who maybe don't have that experience uh, what the A-10 um, support uh, structure is, what that, what that airframe does? Yeah, you know, the A-10 was designed for close air support. It is a rugged machine. Uh, it purposely carries a lot of ordnance and a lot of fuel. Uh, but not a lot of speed. It is not the sleekest looking airplane, and it has earned the nickname Warthog, but the Warthog has it where it counts. It carries a 30 millimeter a tank killing gun and a variety of free fall and precision munitions. It was designed to search out and destroy ground targets, uh, either with advancing coalition forces or in advance of such an effort. And during Desert Storm, it was famously used to attack artillery, armor, and was really made famous by some of the scud hunting heroics that the A-10 pilots uh, uh, and the successful missions they were able to fly throughout the theater during Desert Storm. As I say, anybody who's uh, knows of the Warthog loves the Warthog because it's it's a weapon system that uh, really does its job well. And if you're on the ground, you want a Warthog above you taking out that uh, heavy artillery or taking out those tanks and, and protecting you in that regards. It, 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 but as you mentioned, it's kind of a slow, not particularly uh, maneuverable plane, is it? Actually, it's, it's quite maneuverable. Uh, it's just not very fast, uh, which means it can't run away from things. But it is actually highly maneuverable, which allows it to evade anti-aircraft artillery and surface-to-air missile fire. Um, the cockpit is lined with a titanium bathtub designed to protect the pilot from small and medium caliber weapons, which while not very comforting to the parents of A-10 pilots, is a great uh, comfort to the guys and gals who fly that weapon system. And, and as we move into August of 1990, uh, Steve is activated, uh, uh, Captain F uh, Phyllis is activated to go over and support the efforts at Desert Shield. Why don't you pick that story up for us? Sure. So um, Saddam Hussein rolls across the border 
uh, the U.S. has to react, and one of the first units to deploy were the A-10s, and Steve was actually part of the advanced team. So he jumped on a military transport uh, several days before the A-10s deployed and went to Saudi Arabia and actually met the aircraft on the ground. And when they landed at a civilian airfield under construction, there was no fuel, there were no weapons, so the airplanes landed with half a tank of gas and a, and a loaded gun, uh, and were were briefed that the bad guys might come over the the border any moment, uh, and it was a very tense time for the several weeks uh, before they could build up fuel and munitions and other stockpiles, and before it came evident that the Iraqis were not going to come across into Saudi Arabia. But there was a role ultimately to be played here, and tell us about the missions that. Uh, uh, Steve went on. Sure. As Desert Storm kicked off, uh, Steve's very first mission was to attack an early warning ground-controlled intercept site. He also attacked some very sophisticated surface-to-air missile sites, most notably an SA-6 site. But the Warthogs were really tasked uh, to beat down on the ground forces arrayed within about 30 miles of the uh, Kuwait-Saudi border. Uh, their priorities were to attack artillery, uh, armor, and then any military equipment uh, to try and decrease the combat capability of those forces to about a 50% capability. That's what the coalition commander, General Schwarzkopf, wanted before embarking on any offensive ground operations. And at this point, the uh, aircraft is taking off uh, from Saudi Arabia, is that it? It is, yes. They were based in Saudi Arabia. They had... uh, a main operating location where they actually stationed 144 A-10s. The photos are incredible. Uh, they also forward deployed some of those assets a little further west to sit combat search and rescue um, alert and also as a forward operating location to pre-position munitions and fuel so that they could recover into those bases and fly more sorties every day because the A-10s were flying three, four times a day around the clock when the weather was good starting on this, the 17th of January when Operation Desert Storm kicked off. And so in, in early January, uh, Steve is in Saudi Arabia, I take it. He is. He's in Saudi Arabia. He's actually a flight commander. And this is where uh, the story with Rob Sweet really uh, unfolds because uh, Steve had been the squadron weapons officer, got promoted to flight commander, and in early January was tasked with combat pairing. And the idea behind that is they were going to pair – flight lead and wingman to try and average out the experience in each two-ship flight. And as the most senior guy in the flight, Steve paired himself with Lieutenant Rob Sweet. So picture this, Steve has over 1,500 hours in the A-10, is is a distinguished graduate of the Fighter Weapons School. His wingman, Rob Sweet, has 150 hours of time in the A-10, and they are tasked together uh, and fly their first 29 combat missions together during Operation Desert Storm. Yeah, and... and I mean, that's just an ocean apart in, in terms of, of flight experience, uh, let, let alone combat experience. And at that point, um, Steve, Steve's pretty accomplished. Uh, he's had a lot of sorties uh, during, during that part of the, the early years of, or early days of, of, uh, uh, of the operation, hasn't he? Yes, he's flown a lot. And actually, Rob has flown a lot. And actually, to his credit, uh, by all accounts, Rob was a very accomplished fighter pilot and caught on very quickly. Uh, you shouldn't let the fact that he arrived in Saudi Arabia with 150 hours fool you. Uh, he made his mark in combat, and those that saw him in action had nothing but great things to say about him. So he was 
he was gifted beyond his hours of experience as a fighter pilot and was a good good wingman for Steve throughout the war. And it's about a month later, it's in, in February when um, things turn a little sideways. Uh, t- tell us what happened on February 15th, 1991. Yeah, you know, the day after Valentine's Day, Rob and Steve were tasked with their 30th mission and undoubtedly their most dangerous mission. As I mentioned before, most of their earlier missions had been near the border. They were tasked to go 100 miles north of the Saudi Arabian-Kuwaiti border to attack Saddam Hussein's elite Republican Guard units. These units were well-equipped. They were well-trained. They had 10 years of combat experience uh, with the uh, Iranians and, most importantly, had been spared the wrath of much of the air campaign. And as Rob tells the story of their mission on February 15th, when they arrived overhead of that division, the unit was in pristine condition. There was not much evidence that they had suffered a tremendous amount of tax. And so Steve and Rob had their hands full on a very dangerous mission. Um, and they began their attacks very successfully. They, they dropped their free-fall munitions. They, they did a couple of strafing passes. And it was about time to go home. They were low on weapons, low on fuel. And they were getting ready for their final pass when Rob was engaged and shot at by the first surface-to-air missile he had seen during the war. Now, luckily for Rob, that first missile missed, thanks to a break call by Steve. Uh, And after that missile goes flying by, Steve rolls in to attack the source of that launch. And as he comes off target, Rob is unfortunately engaged by the second surface-to-air missile shot at him during uh, Desert Storm. This one hits home, knocks most of the right wing off of Rob's airplane. And passing through about 6,500 feet, Rob is looking at a face full of sand and an A-10 out of control, and now pulls the ejection handles and finds himself parachuting down on top of the 10,000 angry Iraqi soldiers that he and Steve had just finished bombing. And, and this is uh, Lieutenant Rob Sweet, who's the wingman for Captain Stephen Phyllis, who's now got to react or act. That, yeah, that's exactly right. Steve is a seasoned combat search and rescue pilot. He knows exactly what to do, and he takes off his flight lead hat, and puts on his combat search and rescue pilot hat, confirms a good shoot, notes the coordinates of Rob's location, gets on the radio, and begins the search and rescue effort by contacting the Airborne Warning and Control System aircraft, otherwise known as AWACS. And Steve knocks out those responsibilities in about 60 seconds. And that's something that any flight lead would do. And so, you know, that is, that is not necessarily the heroics of Steve's story. It's what happens next, Jim, that separates what Steve did to what others have done in similar situations. And it's at that point that he, he sees uh, the, the lieutenant parachuting down and has to make uh, a decision about what do I do next. Tell, tell, exact- us, tell us what he does. Yeah, that's exactly right. So he, he starts a left-hand orbit right over the top of the parachute. Now, um, picture this. He's the only A-10 over the troops. He's at 10,000 feet at 200 knots, which is not very fast, in a left-hand turn over 10,000 emboldened Iraqis. And he's keeping sight of Rob, and he's being shot at by over 150 mobile anti-aircraft artillery systems and two dozen sophisticated SA-13 surface-to-air missile systems, one of which has just struck pay dirt with his wingman, Rob Sweet. While he's doing that, he gets on the radio He calls another flight of A-10s and says, come here. I need you to 
to do a combat air patrol over my position to bring additional firepower because Steve is not about to give up on Rob. He's not convinced Rob is going to be uh, captured. Uh, so he wants to bring as much friendly firepower into the area as possible. And he's got to worry about Rob being shot at uh, while he's parachuting down. Yeah, and that's actually uh, well-founded because as Rob tells the story, as he's parachuting down, takes his helmet off, he can hear bullets going whizzing by his head. So he is part of uh, – he's being shot at, and the fact that Steve stays in the area obviously – uh, means that some of the guns that were aiming at Rob are now aiming at Steve. And how do these final uh, minutes play out? Yeah, so um, so wh- while Steve is trying to get these A-10s in the area and he's orbiting over these troops, um, the A-10 has no radar, so Steve actually has to talk their eyes onto his position. And they're unable to find him, and so Steve decides, with complete disregard for his own safety, to dispense several high-visibility pyrotechnic flares. So picture this, a lone A-10 in the afternoon sun um, dispenses these high visibility flares. Anybody on the ground with a gun who hadn't yet seen him now can see him. And Jim, just seconds later, Steve's airplane is hit by a surface-to-air missile and mortally wounded. Steve is able to quickly assess the fact that his airplane is very badly damaged. He's not going to make it home. And so what does he do? The first thing he does, it gets on the radio and tells his inbound A-10 fighter pilots, hey, you guys should go home. It's too dangerous here. So again, looking out for others rather than himself. It's what happens next uh, in addition that really is the stuff of heroes. So Steve assesses the fact that he's not going to make it home. He gets on the radio and in a voice as cool and calm as you and I are talking here today, keys the mic and using the code word of the day says Enfield 37 is bagged as well. Telling everybody on the radio that he's not going to make it home. And Jim, unbeknownst to Rob Sweet, his fellow fighter pilots, the inbound A-10s, his family, his fiance, moments later, about 15 miles south of Rob's position, Steve is engaged by another, by another Iraqi surface-to-air missile system and his A-10's tail is knocked off, and he crashes into the desert and is killed on impact, um, probably before Rob Sweet hits the ground in his parachute. And, and he turned away from where um, Rob Sweet was floating to the ground, again, sort of to draw attention away from that area and back to himself, didn't he? And that's exactly right, because the number one rule of search and rescue is don't become part of the search and rescue. So so getting out of the area was helpful to Rob in a couple ways. One, like you mentioned, it drew fire. Number two, it allowed the search and rescue forces that at this point had been launched and were on the way to pick up Rob to focus their attention on finding and picking up Rob and not worrying about Steve, another survivor. Uh, And so it wasn't for a month after the war that they even found Steve Wreckage. Nobody knew what happened to him uh, for well over a month after the war was over, in fact. And at this point, I'm I'm sure there are veteran radio listeners, and we're talking to Brigadier General Jim Demarest um, about a friend of his, of Captain and Fighter Pilot Stephen Phyllis, who went down during the Kuwait War, 
But Jim, folks are wondering, well, did, why didn't he eject? Yeah, you know, that, that that's a great question. And um, based upon my analysis and the forensics, um, he was trying to get as far away as possible. He was, in fact, pointing toward the nearest suitable landing field. And based upon uh, some eyewitness accounts of the crash site, that's, that second surface-to-air missile, when it struck his A-10, it knocked the tail off the airplane. And what happens to an airplane when the tail gets knocked off is that there's a, there's a very violent negative G pitching motion. So Steve was pitched up against the canopy, very likely hit his head with such a force that it rendered him unconscious and unable to reach down and pull the ejection handles. Were the remains of um, uh, Captain Phyllis ultimately uh, brought home to the United States? Yes, they, uh, at the crash site, were able to identify a very small, about 25 grams of bone fragments, which through DNA testing and matching, they were able to identify as the remains of Captain Steve Phyllis. And those very small remains were brought home and um, given full military burial honors in his home in Rock Island, Illinois. We can't imagine the pain and, and anguish that the family has gone through as a result of their loss of their loved one. And th there's some comfort that's gained when, when one's uh, efforts are recognized. And, and you've set out to try to have uh, his efforts recognized uh, by evaluation to be a recipient of the Medal of Honor. Tell, tell us why you're engaged in this effort. Well, it started with the, the first thing I did as I began to unwind this was I went and visited with Steve's mom and dad uh, because I wasn't about to do anything related to Steve without the family's uh, permission and consent. Um, really, my interest here is that I want people to know the story of Steve Phyllis because what he did was heroic. And Steve was awarded the Silver Star for his heroism. And that is evidence enough of his heroism. If he does not receive a higher valor award or an upgrade, his efforts are heroic. And my mission really is to get his story out there. But when you look at the Medal of Honor, what the standards are, the Medal of Honor uh, requires someone to distinguish himself with conspicuous gallantry at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty with acts of personal bravery or self-sacrifice so conspicuous as to clearly distinguish Steve from his comrades. And when you, when you evaluate the story that I just told you and the in investigation that I've been able to do and the analysis of the data, I think Steve's heroics uh, check all those boxes. And so uh, I'm on a mission to see if I can get the Department of the Air Force, Department of Defense, members of Congress, and the White House to agree with me and at least re-look at his valor award to see if, if they believe that perhaps his sacrifice is worthy of more recognition uh, than, than the silver star he's already earned. And this is a big hill to climb, and it, you're working on a kind of a grassroots building momentum to have folks in DOD to really look at this again, and, and it helps to have... Uh, friends in Congress say you ought to look at this. It helps to have uh, folks high up in government say, you know, we ought to look at this story. If there if there are folks out there in the listening audience and say, man, yeah, this is something I, 
I'd, I'd like to send an email or write a letter on. What do you, what do you suggest they do? Yeah, um, thank you for asking that question. First of all, uh, what really has started the conversation that you and I are having is that Air Force magazine just a few weeks ago published an article titled Above and Beyond, which chronicles Steve's heroics and summarizes the story that I've told you and uh, my quest uh, to have his Valor Award upgraded. So uh, if they go to jimboostmrs.com, click on news, they can get the article. First thing is forward that article to everybody in your group. Let's get the word out. Uh, number two, you can sign up for a newsletter on my website that allows you to keep track of what's going on. We are currently putting together uh, a campaign to garner co congressional and White House support. If you have connections with uh, people of influence in government, in the military, write those people. Tell them about Steve Phyllis's story. Encourage them to support an upgrade of his Valor Award. We are launching on a campaign right now to engage members of the Senate and House Armed Services Committee, the Illinois delegation, uh, friendly folks in the White House, anybody who will listen uh, to really build on this grassroots campaign, um, along with help from the Air Force Association in Washington, D.C., we intend to go deep and wide. And so to the extent that your listeners are connected with anybody of influence, getting the story out and supporting reconsideration of this Valor Award would be really helpful. And, you know, veteran radio listeners, um, you might not realize the power of that letter. Um, it may not be obvious to you, but it's so important. These upgrades take years. It, it's a real effort for people to sort of get this up in the to-do list. So get out there, make a call, talk to your congressman or woman, um, use that influence to say, hey, this is this is worth looking at. And there, were there any Medal of Honor recipients coming out of uh, Desert Storm? No, that, that's one of the great uh, mysteries. You know, I, I think that we as a military were a victim of our own success, but there has not been a single Medal of Honor awarded now, I believe that there is one uh, kind of making its way through the process for an Army hero. Uh, but the last Air Force fighter pilot to earn a Medal of Honor did so in Vietnam. Uh, and recently, an Air Force combat controller, John Chapman, back in 2018, was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroics in the war on terror in Afghanistan in the late, in the 20, uh, mid, mid uh, I think it's 2012, 2013, 2014 timeframe. Um, but part of the problem, quite honestly, Jim, is it's, it's a little hard for us to tell the story of the heroics from uh, an airplane perspective. It's, it's a little easier for people to understand the guy who dives on the grenade. It's a little bit harder to understand how dangerous the mission that Steve was on and how heroic his actions were. And so I'm, I'm on a mission to help educate folks on, A, how dangerous it was, and B, how heroic the things that Steve actually did were and they stand up to any of our Medal of Honor recipients, as far as, as far as I can tell. Jim, if you have a few more minutes, I'd like to turn and talk about what happened to Rob Sweet, if you might. Sure. Um, so Rob had a five-minute parachute ride down, and uh, try as he might to steer away, he landed 50 feet from an Iraqi T-72 tank and was swarmed by 40 or 50 very unhappy Iraqi soldiers who came out and beat him with fists and kicks and rifle butts. Uh, by his own account, if he had not been rescued by a couple of Iraqi officers, 
Uh, they might have beat him to death right there on the spot. Rob was taken uh, immediately as a prisoner of war, was taken to an underground complex, eventually was made his way to Baghdad, where he was repeatedly beaten and tortured. He was actually in the Baghdad prison that was struck one night by uh, U.S. F-117s and survived that event. But fortunately for Rob, uh, 19 days after being captured as a POW, he was liberated the first weekend in March uh, as a POW and stepped off the airplane. Kind of to give you a kind of a sense as to what that was like, everyone was so confident that Steve had survived uh, as well that that when they sent an escort officer to, to meet Rob, they were told to send one to meet Steve as well. And so, you know, when Rob walked off the airplane, um, his Steve's family was delighted. Of course, he, um, when Steve didn't walk off the airplane, then the question started. But, but Rob, thankfully, um, uh, healed from his wounds, returned to flying. And believe it or not, next month, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Sweet is going to culminate an over 30-year flying career. He's, he's been in the Air Force Reserves flying the A-10 and at Moody Air Force Base in June. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Sweet is going to retire and there's going to be a big gathering of his Desert Storm and A-10 buddies to celebrate that incredible accomplishment and event. Well, I suspect they're going to uh, toast a beverage to Captain Stephen Phyllis, who uh, largely made that possible. Yeah, and uh, Rob will be the first one to tell you that uh, he was interviewed for the Air Force Magazine article, and uh, he is 110% behind an upgrade uh, of Steve's Valor War because Rob knows how dangerous it was, and he knows to what lengths Steve went to to try and save his wingmen and fellow airmen. And that's exactly the kind of heroics that we typically recognize with the Medal of Honor. And uh, and Rob is behind uh, this uh, like I mentioned, 110%. So those of us who are familiar with uh, at least a little bit with the Medal of Honor process know that you have to have sign-off up your chain of command and that sometimes this takes uh, 50 years as the guys in Vietnam are still being uh, recognized and getting upgrades, uh, a couple of them to their uh, silver stars or distinguished uh, flying crosses, those sorts of things. Um, how has the chain of command uh, approached your efforts here, um, Jim? Well, uh, quite honestly, I, we're in the beginning of these efforts. I have been socializing this um, because I want to I get it out to a broader audience. I want to make sure that it's not just me who thinks Steve Phyllis should, go, should be awarded the Medal of Honor. The feedback that I've been getting from currently serving and formerly serving military members has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, but as you can understand, the Air Force has a corporate process. And so I am in the process of building the package, uh, which will make the case for the upgrade. Uh, included in that will be, um, I happen to have access to the audio tape that chronicles this. Um, I have a number of witnesses, Rob Sweet and others, who will, will swear out statements uh, Steve's uh, wing commander at the time, now retired two-star uh, general, Sandy Sharp, is, is going to support the package and sign off on the upgrade. So the stars are aligning to get it going. But rightfully so, the Air Force is going to allow the process to go through a review. And it's going to be looked at by an impartial review board of senior military officers. And they're going to make their their take on it. Um, and they're not tipping their hand right now, nor would I ex expect them to. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fawson.
It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org, the U.S. Small Business Administration Veterans Business Outreach Center, Eisenhower Center, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46 also in Ann Arbor. They keep us on the air, as does your support. Go to Facebook. Go to veteransradio.net and support our efforts. And until next time, you are dismissed.